Our Father, tonight on the day after an election, we remind ourselves of what the scriptures tell us about these transitions of leadership. Daniel was in a very difficult situation. He and his friends that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the nation of Judah had been taken into captivity into Babylon and these young men, teenage boys, when they were taken from their homes and their country, <clears throat> all because for hundreds of years, the nation as a whole had refused to listen to you, the Lord God Almighty, who had made a covenant with them and made promises, and you had sent the prophets, and you had given them your oracles and your truth, but they hardened their hearts, and you warned them through the prophets, and finally, after your incredible long-suffering and patience, you took them into 70 years of captivity. But when those young men were picked because of their royal family ties and put into the elite training program for the great power of Babylon, they had some decisions to make because there were different gods, there was a different morality, there was different laws, there was a different language, and they had to decide who was going to be their God and who they were going to follow. And in the midst of all that, at a certain point, Nebuchadnezzar declared that uh, because he'd had a dream and it frightened him so deeply, he said to those uh, counselors and those sages, I usually tell you the dream and you give me the interpretation. But I'm not playing games on this thing. This is serious. So if you guys know your stuff, you go ahead and tell me what I dreamed. And they panicked and they knew they couldn't do it. And he was going to take their heads. And that would have included Daniel and his friends who were in the training program. But Daniel and his friends prayed and asked you to show you what he dreamt. And you gave it to them. You gave it to Daniel. And in thanksgiving for what you gave him, before he revealed it to the king, he prayed in Daniel 2. And he talked about you and about your greatness and about your sovereignty and about the fact that you are God over the nations. And Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king on the face of the earth, but he was nothing before you. And in that, in that section where he's giving thanks, he, he says, you are the God who changes the times and the seasons. Their times were changed. Our times are changing. Radical shifts, radical changes that... Uh, trouble us and uh, give us anxiety because what we knew as a nation has been earthquaked. 
But Daniel said, you are the God who changes the times and the seasons. If they have changed, it's because ultimately you're behind it. And then he said, he said that you raise up rulers and you set them down. You do it. You do it. We go about our business. We vote. We use our voice. We're glad we have one. But ultimately, you decide. You're in charge. You are God. Your throne is in the heavens. Your sovereignty rules over all. So we remind ourselves that none of what transpired could have transpired unless it was your will. And oftentimes that puzzles us because we would not have done it that way. We would have looked for different results perhaps in certain races and situations. We were hoping for certain things. Perhaps some occurred, others didn't. So what do we do? We leave it in your good hand. Because you are wise. And you have purposes that we know nothing about. You hold the, the worlds in your hand. The nations are a drop in the bucket. Jesus is Lord of all. We rest in your sovereignty and your wisdom and that there is a plan for the nation, a plan for us, a plan for our families. We thank you that it is more exact than an atomic clock. The scriptures tell us about it. One day Jesus will return. All this nonsense will be over and he shall reign forever. So with that in mind, we can relax and we thank you for the freedom we enjoy. We ask that it would continue. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as to how we should live as your men in these times. It's going to take courage. Give us that courage. Don't let us be intimidated. Don't let us fear men. Let us fear you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, here we are back uh, in our study that we're calling Building on Bedrock. The Bedrock, uh, the bedrock are, are the Ten Commandments, and this study is all about the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments are the bedrock of all ethics and law. Just kind of reviewing a little bit what we've talked about in previous weeks. We're obviously not going to finish this study this semester. Because these commandments are, are um, they're, they're real clear and they're real specific, but they're also real broad in their application. And we want to take our time and we want to relish God's wisdom because we need God's wisdom in these times where the foundations are fragmenting and they're being destroyed. Now, we didn't meet last week, but the week before we were on the sixth commandment and we're back there tonight. The sixth commandment, we'll read it out of Exodus chapter 20. It's very brief, it's very short, verse 13. The King James says, 
thou shalt not kill. There's been confusion over this, over the years. And what we want to do tonight is we want to clear up the confusion by carefully looking at the text. This is why we do Bible study. Let me tell you where we're going tonight and how we're going to do this. I'll just tell you up front. We're going to ask four questions tonight. And I'll give you the four questions and then we'll come back and work our way through Thou shalt not kill. And as we'll see in just a minute, the idea really is you shall not murder. That's the idea. We are living in a culture of death in America. It's a culture of death. The last place you want to be is in the womb in America. Because you're not even considered to be a human being, although very clearly you are a human being. In God's eyes, the scriptures declare that. I mean, medical science declares it. I saw an article recently that someone, one of the uh, young wives in the royal family of Britain uh, is pregnant and the headline was, she's going to have a baby. And one guy that I appreciate his insights, he said, that's incorrect. According to their own standards, it's not a baby. Well, of course it's a baby. Yeah, but you understand what I mean. Of course it's a baby. Uh, another place that's dangerous is uh, old age. Because as long as you're useful and as long as you can contribute to the economic viability and well-being and pay taxes and we'll keep you going. We'll, we'll charge you an arm and a leg, but we'll keep you going. But you better be careful because euthanasia is alive and well. They'll pull the plug. Now, I'm not going to touch on that tonight. I'm just saying we're living in a culture of death. It's all around us. Let me give you the four questions we're going to answer tonight in regard to this sixth commandment. The first question is, what does the commandment really mean? And we touched on this two weeks ago. We'll just do a quick review. We've already touched on it. Number two, what are the three basic views on war? I want to talk about war tonight. What are the three basic views on war? Number three, what are the principles that determine if a war is just? Number four, what does the Bible say about women in combat? I just thought we'd shake it up a little bit. We're living in times where things that were fixed and things that were understood and things that were clear for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years are no longer fixed, clear, or accepted. Everything's being challenged. Everything's being turned upside down. This is why we say that the, commands, uh, the Ten Commandments of God are the gold standard. 
They are the absolute gold standard of morality and ethics and law. And along with that, we said in earlier weeks that we're living in days of lawlessness. We're looking at the hyperinflation of lawlessness and wickedness. It's growing exponentially around us every day. Therefore, we have this culture of death. I, re I remember uh, 30 some years ago hearing Francis Schaeffer speak in Oakland, California, the great Christian um, teacher and apologist and philosopher. And he did a film series along with C. Everett Koop, who eventually became the Surgeon General, longtime member at 10th Presbyterian Church in, Pre in uh, Philadelphia who actually, they met when one of their children was ill and they were on their way to the mission field. Interesting how those guys came across one another. They wound up doing a film series, uh, How Shall We Then Live? Talking about the changes in America, the changes in morality, the changes in law, and that we'd become a culture of death, among other things. So let's answer the first question. What does the commandment really mean? This stuff can get a little bit fuzzy. Mary and I were talking the other night. Back when we were in seminary, we had a group of friends and we were all having dinner one night and just talking and one of the guys was a fairly new Christian. But as we were talking, he made the statement that if someone were to break into his home in the middle of the night, that he would not do anything to stop the individual because Jesus talked about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek. Now, he was a young Christian. And you read some of these things and you hear some of these things, and in his mind, well, that means if someone breaks into your home, you're passive and you don't want to harm the person and, you know, you don't want to, I mean, what if you killed the guy? What, and you've got the commandment that says, thou shalt not kill. Well, we were all rookies in seminary and we were gonna learn how to interpret the scriptures and you don't interpret the scriptures any differently than you interpret the sports page. Did you know that? There are just, there are principles by which we interpret to get the meaning. Uh, context is always very important. If you read a verse and it's not clear, about 80% of the time, if you'll back up a little bit and read the context of the verse, you'll be surprised how often the question you have is immediately answered just by the immediate context. Everything has a context. You don't like your words being taken out of context. So when we study scripture, we study the immediate, what is the immediate context? And then there's also the context of the book. What book are you studying? Uh, Read the whole book. If your question isn't answered, if you're in Romans uh, 6, back up, read the whole book. Or a smaller book, Philippians. You're in Philippians 2, read the whole book. Read all four chapters. So you got the immediate context and you got the context of the book. Then you back up and you've got to ask yourself, well, what's the context of the Testament? Is it Old Testament? Is it New Testament? Scripture interprets scripture. 
and we look at everything scripture has to say about a particular subject or topic. And then fourthly, you'll have a, a cultural context. We have been studying the Ten Commandments. And we've made the statement on the Old Testament law that there are three aspects to the law. This is just very quick in review. Three aspects to the law. There is the civil law and there's the ceremonial law. Andy Stanley, many of us have appreciated his work and his ministry and his outreach. He's been doing a number of articles on unhitching from the Old Testament. That the Old Testament really has nothing to do with present day Christians. And that's not correct. Uh, he says Jesus fulfilled the law, and he, that is correct. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But you've got three aspects of the Old Testament law. You've got the civil law. We've got civil laws. By the way, these were for Israel. Moses was the head. God gave the law to Moses. Some 613 laws. Some were civil laws. Some were ceremonial in terms of worship and how sacrifices were made. Jesus fulfilled all of those laws. They, the civil and the ceremonial, do not apply to us as New Testament believers. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words, the moral law is for all people in all cultures and all generations. And it does apply to us. But you see, you got to do a little bit of study. And if someone breaks into your home at three in the morning and wants to assault your wife, what do you do? You immediately think, what is the context? <laughs> Hopefully you've thought it through before then. But let me just go ahead and tell you this. Defend your wife and defend your kids. You're not going to break this commandment. Now, I want to just simply give Philip Ryken's definition, as I did two weeks ago, because it's so good. What does this commandment really mean that is usually translated, at least it was in the King James, thou shalt not kill. Riken says, the sixth commandment is one of the shortest. It is just two words in the original, lo rot shah, which means don't kill. Uh, but what kind of killing does the Bible have in mind? The Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing. The one used here has been chosen carefully. The word racha is never used in the legal system or in the military. We talked about that two weeks ago. Murder is what the sixth commandment mainly has in mind. If you're in military service and you're in war and you shoot a soldier on the other side, that is not murder. Because this word is never applied to that situation. What is in mind, murder is what the sixth commandment has in mind. The premeditated, premeditated taking of an innocent life. The deliberate killing of a personal enemy. Personal enemy. Reichen says to summarize what the sixth commandment forbids is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. It applies to murder in cold blood. Uh, manslaughter and passionate rage and negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. And then he says this, God's people have always recognized that there are some situations 
where taking a life is not only permitted, but actually warranted. One such situation is self-defense, the protection of oneself and one's family from violent attack. To extend the principle, we may also kill in the defense of our nation. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. As Stephen Carter explains, war is horrible and should be fought rarely. And only to avoid greater horrors. But this view has increasingly come under attack. After the horrific attack on the World Trade Center in New York, some people said, and you heard this, if we kill as a response to this great tragedy, we are no better than the terrorists who launched this awful offensive. Killing is killing and killing is wrong. That is not the biblical position. The Bible teaches that it is not unlawful to kill enemies in wartime, provided that the war is just. There's another phrase you'll hear from time to time. Violence begets violence. That's not true. Sometimes violence stops violence. I live in one of two school districts. I don't have any kids in school anymore. But where I live, it's one of two school districts in the entire United States where there will never be a school shooting. And you say, well, how do you know that? How could you say such a thing? Because in that school district, some teachers and some coaches and some administrators carry weapons. It's not a gun-free zone. And they don't have billboards on the interstate advertising that they're a gun-free zone. But it's well known. Now, is it all teachers? Is it all administrators? They won't say. So you don't know who is carrying. But you do know this. If you want to just go a mile or two away, they are gun-free. North, south, east, west. It's always fascinating to me in our culture when these horrific acts of murder take place. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, now, you're, now Steve, you're getting political. No, I'm getting biblical as to what God says. And every time there's a school shooter who's doing violence, somebody else shoots him. Sometimes they take him into custody. Sometimes they shoot themselves. But you get what I'm saying. What resolves somebody out of control with a gun is someone who is using a gun to save human life. It's always been that way. This is relevant stuff. Let's go right to the second question. What are the three basic views on war? And there are three views on war, and we touched on them a couple weeks ago, but not in detail. It's worthwhile looking at them. A lot of you have appreciated Norman Geisler over the years and his books and his teaching. Uh, Geisler addresses this, and he has a chapter on war. I'm going to give you a paragraph that is in his summary. I'm going to start at the end. And then we'll go and pick up something in the middle. But this is very good. So what are the three basic views on war? Norman Geisler says, there are three basic views on war. Activism, pacifism, and selectivism. 
We'll explain those. Activism claims it's always right to go to war in obedience to one's country. Okay, you should have a problem with that. Activism claims it is always right to go to war in obedience to one's country. That's not a good biblical position. We'll see this in a minute. Secondly, pacifism claims that it's never right. So activism says it's always right to go to war. Pacifism says it's never right. And selectivism holds that it is sometimes right when the war is a just war. As we have seen, and we haven't seen it yet, but he's summarizing, activism as such is inadequate because we should disobey government when it commands us to do what is morally wrong. So if you are in, if you are in a nation and the government commands you to do something that is morally wrong like they did to the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, remember Exodus, how did the Jews ever get into Egypt because the brothers sold him into slavery. You know the story. And then eventually God raises up Joseph. He becomes co-Pharaoh, if you will. He brings his dad and his brothers. And here come the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're growing. And, and then it says that a Pharaoh arose years and years, decades and decades later, who did not know Joseph. All he knew is that these Hebrew people were proliferating. And so he gave an order, he was afraid, there's so many of them, they're gonna outnumber us, they're gonna overpower us. So he gave a directive to the Hebrew midwives. Um, it, it, we don't want baby boys. Um, it's worth turning to, actually. So take a quick look here at Gen uh, Exodus 1. 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. 16, he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. Now watch this. But the midwives feared God and did not, did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. Why is that? Well, you, you know, there are verses, and we'll see them in a minute, that says God has ordained the government and we're to obey the government. We obey the government until the government tells us to disobey God. What, we are, uh, what happened then is that Pharaoh thought he and his government, he thought they were God. We've got people that think today government is God. Government is not God. And government better not be your God. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord God Almighty says. So when the government, we want to be good citizens and obey the laws as best we can, but when they tell us clearly to disobey the law of God, we got a choice and we better make the right choice, which is to disobey the government and take the consequences. Uh, Daniel had to do this. That's why he wound up in a lion's den. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow. Fiery furnished, you know that story. They're gonna die. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you worship? If you, if you worship, I'll let you out. And they said, oh king, we don't need to give you an answer in this. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Okay. So, you gotta think 
You gotta think when you're faced with these situations who your God's gonna be. Then he goes on and talks about pacifism. He says, furthermore, total pacifism is also insufficient because it overlooks the clear instances where the Bible commends killing in such circumstances as self-defense, Exodus 22, capital punishment, Genesis 9, 6, and the defense of the innocent, Genesis 14. We're gonna look at that. Now, Geisler has another section. You remember he talked about selectivism? Selectivism is where you gotta make a choice if your nation is going to war, whether or not you should be a part of that as a Christian. And see, that'll throw some of us because we hear this phrase, my country right or wrong. If your country is wrong, you better be careful because your country cannot be your God. The Lord God Almighty is your God. You had a lot of Christian young men in Germany under Hitler that had to face this. The Christian church in Germany had to face it. What do you do? You get it. So when it comes to what is called selectivism, are you guys still with me here? You see? And you say, well, my fighting years are over. Yeah, but you got sons and you got grandsons, maybe. And they'll be asking you for some wisdom. Geisler says the arguments in favor of selectivism can be grouped into two categories, biblical and moral. We'll summarize them here. First, the biblical basis of selectivism. There are several instances of morally justified killing in the Bible. Some of these refer specifically to individuals and can be extended to nations, and others refer specifically to a country or countries. First, let's go to Exodus 22.2. Exodus 22.2. Now, it's interesting in Exodus 20, he says, God says, you shall not kill. But in Exodus 22, two chapters later in verse 2, we read this. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. Hmm. Why is that? Because it's self-defense. Then you've got Genesis 9-6, which is killing in capital punishment. And again, this can be controversial among Christians, a lot of things right now are controversial to young Christians. A lot of things. I mentioned the book to you by John S. Dickerson early on in the study. How, uh, I just blanked on the title. Hope for the Nations, very good, very good. Um, excellent book. He's a, he's a young guy in his 30s, pastor, brilliant guy. Uh, uh, investigative reporter, won a national award, became a pastor, went to seminary. Uh, he's speaking to this generation. He's one of them. He, interesting, um, we had a midterm 
Is that what they called it yesterday? Midterm? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, midterm election. <clears throat> I, I, uh, I was looking at his book this morning, and in that book he talked about Christian millennials, Christian millennials, been raised in Christian homes, Christian schools, along with their peers who were not Christians, uh, a number of different studies were done. One of the shocking ones was 70% of them had no problem with socialism. I had conversations with my two sons over the past week about their peers in, in Bible churches and the positions they were taking and the um, blogs that were being shared that were saying, listen, listen, our parents and their parents have been fighting this abortion thing forever. It's time to forget it. It's never going to change. So therefore, ignore it. You don't ignore it. You don't ignore killing children in the womb. You don't do that. You keep fighting the good fight and you keep standing up for life. But we're watching a younger generation turning from the gold standard of God. And here we are. It's our job to teach and it's our job to engage and not yell and scream and tell them they're fools. I remember, I remember talking with my uncle Bud one Christmas Eve. I was 18, 19, and I was telling him how cool George McGovern was. And he was telling me why he wasn't. I had no idea what he was talking about. A few years later I did. But see, I hadn't looked carefully. I wasn't discerning. I just was, you get it. Genesis uh, 9, verse 6. It's another instance. Here's what God says. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God is the one if you take human life, God is the one who demands payment of your life because you took something made in his image. You owe it to God. Uh, go over to Genesis 14. There are also divinely approved wars, and one of them is in Genesis 14. And what you've got in Genesis 14, that these kings came, and what they did, they... Uh, attacked and what they did if you get down to verse 11 and 12 they attacked Abraham and they took Lot Abraham's nephew and his possessions uh, verse 14 when Abram heard that his relative had been taken he let out his trained men born in his house 318 he went in pursuit as far as Dan uh, he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants he defeated them uh, 16, he brought back all the goods, also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, also the women and the people. 
Go down to verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed Abraham. He said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. God was not against that. God was for it. Why? Because there are times when it is within God's holiness to practice self-defense, not only of family, but that extends to nations. We also get into the New Testament. In Romans 13, verse 4. Let's go to Romans 13, if you would. So in Romans 13, Paul is talking about different authorities that God has put in place. Every person is being subjected Subjection to the governing authorities. And uh, by the way, Paul was under that great, great, wonderful democracy called the Roman Empire. And, uh, and that great king that we all know and love and celebrate, Nero. Just a bloodthirsty lunatic, sociopath. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed to his ordinance, the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it's a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So uh, governments have, now, now governments, it depends on who's in charge and who's leading. Uh, if, you, if you've got someone who is a Christian in the line with the scriptures and you've got a Christian consensus, that, that's a blessing. But nevertheless, all authorities have been established by God. There are tyrants, there are evils, there, 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 there are good ones. And, and God weaves this all together in his providence and uses it, and he, he's got it. Even right now, there are Christians that are horribly being persecuted in China. There's this lady in Pakistan who was jailed for blasphemy, separated from her children for it was either eight or ten years. Remarkably, and they were going to kill her, and she was exonerated a few days ago. But now... You've got an absolute uproar, and they won't let her out of the country. We need to pray for that lady. We need to pray for the Christians in Africa who are under incredible persecution and being kidnapped by Muslim hordes. They were under Nero. But nevertheless, God establishes government, and he gives them the sword, or he gives them weapons, to keep order and to fight off lawlessness and anarchy. Um, so when you have a shooting at a school, usually who comes in? A representative of the government? Police? Police officers? And they'll take down who they need to take down. Unless they're a couple of weeks away from their pension and they hide behind a post. But that's not the norm, thank the Lord. 
So we thank those who serve in the military. We thank those who serve to protect on the streets every day. We're grateful. They are ministers of God. Luke 3.14 is interesting. And, and what, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about where Scripture says to us that there are instances where it is morally justifiable to take a human life. Uh, in Luke 3.14, this applies specifically to soldiers because John the Baptist, I'll read what Geisler says. John the Baptist sanctioned the role of the military when he was asked by soldiers what they should do after they had become believers. Luke 3.14, he did not tell them to lead the army, but simply to be good soldiers. If it was wrong to be in the military, why didn't he say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized, and resign from the military? He didn't say that. He just said, be good soldiers. Don't take advantage of people. Don't be cruel. Don't take advantage of your position of power. He didn't tell them to leave. He said, just serve the Lord where you are in the military. If you look at Romans 12, look at verse 18. If possible, 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord, says the Lord. Now go to Matthew 5.39. In Matthew 5.39, this is what confused my friend in seminary. Someone broke into my house, I wouldn't do anything to defend my family. He misunderstood what was going on. Matthew 5:39. Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other him also. What is being addressed here by Jesus is individual conduct. The idea is don't take personal vengeance upon someone who has done you wrong. It's the same idea that's in Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. But then a few verses later, he talks about government and that they, they do wield the sword because they've been in authority by God you're following this, aren't you? You see the different context of the different situations? Okay. Now I want to read something to you from Geisler that is just very real and, and very practical. Geisler says this, the pacifist is not facing squarely all the data of Scripture. Rather, while he clings to the prohibition against murder, he overlooks the verses where God commands the taking, uh, taking the lives of wicked men in defense of the innocent. In brief, one cannot justify from Scripture a view that is never right to take another that it is never right to take another human life. Uh, he goes on and says, "Should evil be resisted with physical force? The Sermon on the Mount is the pacifist stronghold." That's Matthew five, six, and seven. 
Did not Jesus say, turn the other cheek and do not resist evil? Yes, but the question is, what did he mean by these statements? It's clear from the total context, the total context that Jesus did not mean that we should never use the sword in self-defense or in civil justice, because we just saw where he did state that. And in Luke 22, they said, Lord, we, he, he said up till now, I said, don't take a money bag, don't take a purse, and don't take a sword. But now I say to you, take a money bag, take a purse, and take a sword. And then they say, we have two swords. He said, it's enough. What were they going to use those f swords for? To open up Amazon Prime cardboard boxes? It was for self-defense. Scripture interprets Scripture. You've got to take everything that it says and work it through. 1 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this takes time, and it takes study, it takes thinking, it takes wrestling. These are hard issues. And you just can't go by how you feel. Or you can't go by what's popular. You can't do it. Especially if you're a Bible teacher. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter judgment. Those who teach the Bible will give an account to the Lord, and it's a stricter judgment for what they taught. By the way, Geisler says, Jesus himself never turned the other cheek to a blow. When he was struck, rapisma is the word, in the face, John 18, 22, he rebuked those who did it, saying, if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? The Sermon on the Mount is not pacifistic. It is anti-retaliatory. There it is again. Don't take your own vengeance. I told a story two weeks ago. The guy who beat up his wife. Um, I was a rookie pastor. And I went, I didn't know what to do. Never had a class on what to do. Nobody told me. I, I just went down to the car dealership where he worked. And if you recall, I said to him, it just popped into my head. I said, the next time you want to beat her up, call me. I'll come over. You can, you, can, you can hit me, and I won't hit you back. But see, we're not going to let you hit her. We're going to defend the weak. We're going to defend the innocent. You're a lot stronger than she is. Now, I'm going to read this because this is, this is good. I love it. This is, this is wisdom. This is common sense from the Word of God. Geisler says, in an evil world, force will always be necessary to restrain evil persons. Ideally, killings by police and military should not be necessary, but this is not an ideal world. It is an evil world. Ideally, we should not need locks on our doors or prisons, but it is simply unrealistic to presume we can get along without them in this wicked world. This can be edited if we need to. But I had a conversation on this wall thing with a Christian. Just let them in. Just let them in. Just let them in. They, they, have, they, they have needs. They, they have, I said, I got a question. Yeah. Do you lock your doors at night? Well, yeah. 
Why would you do that? What if there's some homeless person that wanders into your neighborhood and they're starving and all of that and they need something to eat and have a cup of water in Jesus' name? And I mean, how would you, why would you lock the door? And not, why don't you just do good? I mean, just take care of them. Because it's absurd. Okay, I feel better now. <laughs> Listen, here's what Geisler says. It's evil not to resist evil. It is morally wrong not to defend the innocent. Sometimes only physical force and taking lives are sufficient to accomplish this. All too often in our violent world, hostages are taken and all efforts at negotiations fail. Sometimes military action is the only way to save innocent lives. Yeah. To permit a murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. I think I told this story one time here. I was a freshman in high school, and I'm, it was after a practice, and I'm, I went to get a book from my locker, and there's nobody, you know, there was nobody in the, the building. I got my, I'm walking out, and as I'm walking down this long hallway, here comes a guy, didn't look like he fit, probably 25, um, a rough looking guy. Uh, anyway, I walked by him, you know, just kept going. I walk out of the building, I walk out the plaza, I walk down the steps. I'm, as I was walking out of the building, there was a high school girl walking in. And I walked, in fact, I think I held the door and she walked in and I was heading home. I had a lot of things in my mind. And I went about 100 yards, and boom. I, and honestly, it was the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear anything, he didn't say anything. I, I go, that girl, nobody in the building, what's he doing? And I ran back. I dropped my stuff and I ran. I was compelled. I ran. And I ran, I, I'm running and I can't see it, either one of them. I'm running, I'm running, I run, it was a big, I run to the end, I open the glass doors outside, I look, there's a back building, I see him pulling her by the hair into the building. And I went, hey! And he never saw me, he just ran. She ran. I ran. <laughs> it was just one of those things in a moment. I mean, that was the Lord. That's what needed to be done. That's not, that, that's not talking about me. That's just saying that was the Lord. He was... You get it. That's all I need to say. To permit a murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. To allow a rape when one could have hindered it is an evil. To watch an act of cruelty towards children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. In brief, not resisting evil is a sin of omission. The sins of, and sins of omission can be just as evil as sins of 
commission. In biblical language, anyone then, this is James 4.17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. If it's right, it's in your gut, you know, you know it, do it. Do it. You're the Lord's representative in that situation. Just do it. Let the Lord handle it. You do what's right and leave it to the Lord. You ever ask God to use you? You think that's going to Africa and speaking to 10 million people? Maybe it's just standing up and saying, this isn't right, or speaking up. Geisler again. Just as the cause of justice demands a life for a life in capital crimes, the same logic can be extended to the unjust actions of nations. Other nations have a moral duty to take punitive action against aggressive nation, aggressor nations. Hitler is a case in point. It would have been morally remiss for the Allied forces not to invade Germany and subdue the Nazis at the end of World War II. Nothing less would have served the cause of international justice. So if you know your World War II history, uh, Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister, and he was, and you know, after World War I, they lost a, Britain lost an entire generation of young guys. I mean, it was, it was horrific. Nobody wants war. But now, what's going on in Germany, and they're ignoring it, everybody is except Hitler, and certain guys, and, and Hitler, uh, uh, Churchill was in the wilderness. They didn't want to, they didn't want to hear him. They, they, they were sick and tired of him in the 30s. And he was in exile 20 miles away at his country home. But there were a couple guys in the government who knew, who trusted Churchill, that he loved the England, loved England, he loved the nation. And they were feeding him intelligence reports, often before they got to 10 Downing Street. Because they trusted him. And he's, he's got his eye on it, and he's watching it for years and years and years. And then, you, you know, it gets worse and worse, and, you know, Chamberlain goes and makes peace with, you know, comes back, peace, I've got the paper, I've got a signature. It was bad. It was bad. He'd do anything for peace, anything for peace, anything for peace. It got to where in Parliament, there was a guy named Leo Amory, A-M-E-R-Y, so you had uh, Chamberlain, and then the next prime minister was uh, Churchill. But the guy who was the pivot that made that happen was Leo Amory. He, he was a Christian man in government. You can read about him. He was the one who confronted Chamberlain. And they were ashamed of Chamberlain because he, they felt like the honor of the nation, and all of this was going on. So... Czechoslovakia, you know, we have a pack with Czechoslovakia. He, Hitler runs in, Czechoslovakia, takes them. They had a pack with Poland, runs in. They won't stand up. And the leaders, the men were, of England were just humiliated. And they expect, he made a speech and they expected him. The speech was so bad, and I'm cramming months into this story that I hadn't planned on telling. But some of the men, the speech was so dishonoring members of parliament were running into the men's room to vomit. That's how bad it was. Uh, the next day, Chamberlain made another speech 
And it was even worse. Amory confronted him. And some others did, but Amory was the point guy who stood up and confronted him. And because of that, he declared war. Now, here's what's interesting. He declared war, but he never did anything. It was called the phony war. You can look it up. And for months and months and months, he declared war, but he never did anything. By the way, if you send young men into war, win it. Win the war. To do anything less is treason to those young men who are putting their lives on the battlefield. You owe it to them to win it. He wouldn't even go to war. And then finally, it, it got so bad, who stood up again? Leo Amory and said, for the love of God, leave. And he left. And Churchill got in. And not too many months later, uh, Chamberlain died. And one of the great speeches Churchill ever gave was on behalf of Chamberlain, who died in disgrace. Uh, uh, Churchill could be, he could be terrible, but he could be magnificent. And he said, this man, we've all made our mistakes. He just wanted peace. And there was much to be said for that. But sometimes you can't have peace. You gotta fight the aggressor. Okay. Let me give you, um, let's get to number three. What are the principles to determine if a war is just? What are the principles to determine whether a war is just? And good old Wayne Grudem does this for us. He lays them out, and I believe that he's got um, eight principles. And I'm going to give these to you very rapidly. How can we know if, it, if a war is a just war? And then he talks about the fact that for 2,000 years, Christian pastors and scholars and theologians have been working this stuff out. This wasn't done overnight in a microwave. But they've come up with some principles. He said, here's a useful summary for a just war. I think these criteria are consistent with biblical teachings. Number one, there must be just cause. Just cause. That would be Revelation 19.11. Is the reason for going to war a morally right cause such as defense of a nation? Two, there must be competent authority. Has the war been declared not simply by a renegade band within a nation, but by a recognized competent authority within the nation? Romans 13.1. Here would be the next one. Comparative justice. This would be Romans 13.3. Is it clear that the actions of the enemy are morally wrong and the motives of an actions of one's own nation in going to war are, in comparison, morally right? Standing up against Hitler. One example. Uh, four, right intention. Is the purpose of going to war to protect justice and righteousness rather than simply to rob and pillage and destroy another nation? That would be Proverbs 21, too. Uh, five, last resort. Have all other reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? Matthew 5, 9. Probability of success. Is there a reasonable expectation that the war can be won? Luke 14, 31. If you're going to go fight, win it. 
proportionality of projected results. Will the good results that come from a victory in war be significantly greater than the harm and loss that will inevitably come with pursuing the war? Romans 12, 21. Right spirit. Is the war undertaken with great reluctance and sorrow at the harm that will come rather than simply with a delight in war, as Psalm 68, 30 says? Some just want to go to war. Some just want to fight. That's not a good enough reason. And he's got four more. Just real quick. These are moral restrictions on how a just war should be fought. Just real fast. Number one, proportionality in the use of force. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. Can no greater destruction be caused than is needed to win the war? Two, discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. Is adequate care being taken to prevent harm to, non to citizens? This is why you had the Nuremberg trials. Well, I, I had to work the concentration camps. I had to bring the Jews in. I had to shoot the Jews. I, had to, I was just following orders. That's not good enough. That's not good. You know what the basis of the Nuremberg trials was? The Ten Commandments. The problem is you made Hitler your God. You should have been a Daniel in that situation. Well, it might have cost me my life. Yes, it might have. But God trumps government authorities. Uh, three, avoidance of evil means. Will captured or defeated enemies be treated with justice and compassion? And are one's own soldiers being treated justly in captivity? The Bataan Death March. What happened in prisoner of war camps, Japanese prisoner of war camps? Beyond belief and expression. Horrific. Why? They had another God. And they had another set of laws. Good faith. Is there a genuine desire for restoration of peace and eventually living in harmony with the attacking nation? Matthew 5, 43. Well, I'm out of time. But I want to I just briefly hit this fourth one. What does the Bible say about women in combat? Because this is something relatively new. And it's something that um, is, um, how do you handle this? Women have always been, World War II, you, you had women involved in the military, etc. we know that. But they were never put in combat situations. And that's been true of nations for a long, long time. And once again, I, Grudem has done some really good work on this. I, I, I'm not going to read. I'm, all I'm going to do is read you some verses. Because this was unthinkable, and now it is accepted and the norm Grudem says this from the ESV Study Bible. Most nations throughout history and most Christians in every age have held that fighting in combat is a responsibility that should fall only the men and that it's contrary to the very idea of womanhood and shameful for a nation to have women risk their lives as combatants in a war. Now, see, there's something called feminism. And basically, feminism is against what Scripture says, generally speaking. 
That's a strong statement, but go back and read the go back and read the original writers on feminism. They're fighting biblical principles. Um, the assumption that only men and not women will fight in battle is also a frequent pattern in the historical narratives and is affirmed by leaders and prophets in the Old Testament. God calls his men to protect their women. Husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Jesus gave himself up for the church. That's called protection. If I hear, if I hear a noise downstairs at 3 a.m., I say, hey, Mary, go check that out, will you? <laughs> I don't do that. You don't either. Why not? Intuitively, you know that's not right. You're called to protect. That may not be politically correct, but it's holy. It's morally right. It comes from the heart of God. Women have never had a greater friend than Jesus. Never. Never. He wants his men to protect their women. Someone was telling me recently about the problem of gangs and how young women are often initiated into gangs. They're either initiated through beatings or they roll dice and whatever number comes up is how many times they are raped without protection. That's evil. Where are their daddies? They don't have daddies. Let me read some verses on this combat thing. Numbers 1, verses 2 to 3. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, every male, all in Israel who are able to go to war, every male. Deuteronomy three eighteen. All your men of valor shall cross over arm before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives... Your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the cities that I have given you. It's the way it's always been. Deuteronomy 27. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take her. Deuteronomy 27. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Deuteronomy 24.5. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over arm before your brothers and shall help them. That's Joshua 1.4. The last one would be Nehemiah 4.13. I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows, and I said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah does not tell the people to fight for their husbands, for no wives were fighting. Some may object, Rudum says, that this is ancient history and that when women weren't able to physically fight as the men were. That's a bad argument because they were outdoors, they were healthy, they were active, in better shape than most today. But it was not the way that God intended it to be. There's a young woman named Jessica Lynch. 
taken captive in Iraq in 2003. In her own words, in her own biography, horribly sexually assaulted until special forces went in and got her out nine days later. These commandments are for our good. God says in Deuteronomy 4. The world's fallen apart. People are getting destroyed. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's back to the gold standard, guys. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your word, for your sensibility for your wisdom and discernment. We're living in a day where what is good is called bad and what is bad is called good. Thank you for telling us the truth. We're grateful. Give us courage, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.